Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The Pre-Med Year, session number 427. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. If this is your first time joining us today, we have a great podcast in store for you. I have an amazing conversation with a friend of mine who I've been friends with for a few years, who is now a director of admissions at a new medical school. We're going to talk all about that. If you're not here for the first time and you've been listening for a while, thank you for taking the time to come back to listen to hopefully help improve your journey to medical school. I'm doing a big push that I'd love to get some help from you with, and that's subscribing to my YouTube channel. I've been doing a lot of videos on YouTube, some application renovation, mission accepted. Ask Dr. Gray is on my YouTube channel as well, as well as some other videos that come out. Go to premed.tv, subscribe if you haven't already, and I'm keeping track of who's subscribing by the end of the month. And we're going to do a little bit of a giveaway for Application Academy spot. So go to premed.tv, subscribe to that channel. Let's see if we can get some more people to notice everything that's going on over at premed.tv. All right. So today we're going to have an amazing conversation with someone who had been a pre-med advisor for eight years and got the opportunity to be called up to the big leagues, so to speak. She's now director of admissions at Norda College of Osteopathic Medicine, which is one of the newest medical schools in the country. It's an osteopathic medical school in Utah. And we're going to talk all about kind of her journey into being a pre-med advisor, what she saw from a pre-med side of things that completely kind of changed her mind now that she's on the medical school side of things. We're going to talk about what it's like to be a new medical school and setting that up and and choosing how to pick students and, and admit the students that you want for your school and just so much behind the scenes information about what is going on at Norda College of Osteopathic Medicine. These are the kinds of conversations that I love, these behind-the-scenes looks at a medical school, because it really helps remove some of the secrecy around the admissions process. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Kristen Anderson. Kristen Anderson, welcome to the pre years. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. 
I'm excited to have you on. You and I have been friends for a while and uh, love talking shop about the pre-med world and the medical school world. Um, you come from the undergrad side of things, having been a pre, pre-health advisor, pre-med advisor for a long time. And now you've crossed over to the dark side and are a director of admissions at a medical school now. So congratulations on that. Thank you. I, I'm excited to to talk to you about new medical schools because where you are a director of admissions at Norda College of Osteopathic Medicine, it's a new medical school. And there seem to be more and more opening up and there's always lots of questions around what does that look like and what should students be thinking about and all of that fun stuff. Before we jump into that though, I'd love to just pick your brain about having been on both sides now or being on both sides now, um, some of the the things that you've seen on on both sides. But I, I want to start with your your journey uh, as a pre-health advisor. How did you get into pre-health advising in the first place? Completely by accident. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually have a master's of social work degree and worked as a therapist for a few years out of grad school before I realized that uh, I was a little bit too sensitive for that, that the the overdoses and the relapses and the suicides were a little bit too much for my psyche. And um, so I, I, and I went into grad school knowing that that's what I wanted to do. So I had, after a few years, I was like, oh crap, now, now what? And so I did some soul searching and uh, my mom actually worked at the university that I ended up working at for a long time. I grew up on that campus. It was my own undergrad university. Mm. So when it was time to to make some career changes, I started looking into options at the undergrad institution and landed completely by accident into pre-med advising. Actually, when I uh, applied for the job, I didn't even know what a pre-med advisor was. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, my boss just thought that my my counseling background was enough and that I could learn kind of the nuances of of you know, actual pre-med advising. Um, and I, I actually have used my counseling skills quite a bit working with pre-med. So it yeah. was a, a nice transition. And how long were you a pre-med advisor? Eight years. Eight years. In yep. your eight years as a pre-med advisor, going from not knowing anything about what a pre-med is and what that path looks like to now being a director of admissions, supposedly knowing everything there is to know. <laughs> um what in your mind makes someone a successful pre-med student? Uh, I think it comes down to authenticity, being themselves and um, and doing the things, finding the activities, the experiences that that show who they are and um, that you know help them shine. And that I mean, working with students on both sides, I've found that to be true now. Like now I see that on the admissions side that everything I told my students about being authentic, it does, it makes a difference that we see it on the admissions side. And, um, and that's what helps students stand out um, is, you know, being true to themselves. It's, it's funny. So obviously it's a big philosophy that I have about being, being true to yourself, telling your story and not trying to, to be the best researcher, have the most hours of clinical experience, because that's how most students try to stand out, is they just try to look at 
what the MSAR says is a good student for a medical school. And they try to just multiply that by 10 and go, well, if I have a better GPA, if I have a better MCAT score, if I have more hours, then obviously I'm better than, and, and you should accept me. Why, why does that not work? Uh, well, because one, it's, it's not authentic and, and schools see through it. We, you can see if someone's just checking boxes and just trying to get more hours and, um, it comes through and how they talk about it and how they write about it. And, and more isn't always better. You know, if, if you're just cranking out hours, you might not be getting a lot out of that experience if you're just trying to get hours to get hours. Yeah. And, and like I said, that does, it comes through. What does that look like on an application? How does that come through? Being authentic, so it, how does that come through? Be, how does being authentic come through? Yeah. Um, it, oh, that's hard to it is hard. <laughs> put into words. <laughs> it just does. Um, it, I'm, so I'm thinking about some of the, the applicants that I've reviewed recently and, um, and their authenticity came through and, and just that they had different experiences, but you could tell in the way that they wrote about them and the way that they talked about them um, in both their secondary application. So we do a video for our secondary applications. Um, and then in their interviews, it just, those things came through as just, that's who they are, you know, and it, it, and that felt different than those who seem to, seems like they're just saying the things that, you know, schools want to hear. Mm. Um, it, it's really hard to put into words what that looks like. <laughs> yeah, it, it is hard. Um, and that's why it's hard when I've, the, the books that I've written, right. Telling these, uh, telling these stories and giving these examples, I always fear like I'm giving too many examples because students just take those and go, well, I'm just going to rephrase this and now it's mine and it's, it's different. And I'm like, no, it still doesn't work. You, you still have to tell your own story and come at it from your own point of view and your own, your, your own upbringing and morals and ethics and everything else on, on how you, you talk about everything. So it's, it's definitely a struggle. Now that you are on the other side of things, uh, on the medical school side of things, having been a pre-med advisor for eight years, what is something that you maybe were always annoyed about the the medical school admissions process that you're like, oh, now I get it? Um, oh, there are quite a few things, but <laughs> there, <laughs> um, like the the I would say the uh, lack of communication sometimes kind of that hurry up and wait and then wait mm -hmm. and wait some more and not hear anything. Um, sitting with my students, you know, my advisees who were just wondering and waiting and, you know, I always told them, well, they're, I imagine they're really busy. They probably have a lot of applications that they're going through and, you know, so just be patient. And now I'm on the other side and I'm like, okay, I, <laughs> totally get it now. And, and we've tried really hard to be, you know, as transparent as we can with, with where we're at in the process and kind of get getting out as much as uh, communication as we can, mm -hmm. but it's very, it, it's busy. Yeah. It's insanely busy. Yeah. Take, take a normal email inbox and now multiply it by thousands. <laughs> like that's the, the medical school admissions inbox and communication channel. Uh, yes. It's, it's funny that that's the one you come up with because literally this weekend I was, I was getting ready to tweet something just because 
uh, I, I just see this all the time in, in my Facebook group and everywhere else, students being frustrated by this. Like I submitted 40 applications. I've heard from five schools, what the heck is going on? And, and so I was going to tweet something about it because in, in my mind, I'm a huge tech nerd. I love automation. Like the, they're very easy ways. Um, they, they're complicated, but they're easy. Uh, easy ways to add some automation into communication from medical schools that are triggered on different kind of uh, like time periods and say every every 10 days, send an, an email and based on where the student's file is in our system or whatever, send them a different message or whatever that may be. So that kind of stuff is possible. I'd love to see that kind of stuff from medical schools in the future moving forward because it, it, as the, this process process gets more and more expensive, there's it's it's almost a customer service kind of perspective that students have like i'm sitting here paying you all this money like just tell me something say hello <laughs> i don't know it's it's hard definitely um what is something so so flipping it around a little bit what is something uh that annoyed you as a pre-med advisor that now as a director of admissions you're like most schools don't need to do that annoying uh, this thing that's annoying to a lot of students and a lot of pre-med advisors now being at a medical school, I don't understand why the other schools are doing this. Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say something that annoyed me as an advisor. So like the, the canned, so as an advisor, one thing that really bothered me was when I would try to find out from admissions folks, like what really makes a, a good applicant to your school. And I got like the same canned answers from everyone. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, we're all looking for the same ish student, mm -hmm. but, but I think that every school is looking for something a little bit different and that, that maybe we all could work on, you know, letting in a little bit on those nuances Yeah. that, um, cause seriously, it was, it was always, oh, we're looking for, you know, good service experience, shadowing experience, healthcare yeah. experience. And I'm like, yes, but <laughs> give me more, like, give me something that I can yeah. tell them. And yeah. Yeah. So. It's something that I talk about all the time, right. Is, is fit to the school. And, mm -hmm. and if schools don't tell me anything other than the generic, like we want to serve the underserved, but great. Welcome. Welcome to the 21st century in every other medical school. Um, so it's, it's very interesting. So at some point, obviously you go from being a pre-med advisor to getting a job, being hired uh, as the director of admissions at Norda college of osteopathic medicine, brand new school, just getting preliminary accreditation to start accepting its first class. Let I, I want to kind of go behind the scenes. It's something that I've always loved doing with uh, with people in your position is really going behind the scene, behind the scenes, trying to remove some of the secrecy about some of this stuff. As you come together as a unit, as this as, as this kind of new administration at a school, what are the things that you are all talking about to say, here's who I want at our school, right? What you were just talking about. What makes a good student for Norda College of Osteopathic Medicine? So um, we're really looking for uh, those students with kind of like that trailblazer spirit, especially for our inaugural class, because they are going to lay the foundation for 
years to come that, you know, they're going to kind of set the stage for what our community will look and feel like Mm -hmm. and within the school. And we want to make sure that that, you know, starts off strong. Um, Our curriculum is, it's a little bit different or a lot bit different from a lot of schools. So uh, we're really looking for students that, um, that can really dig in and, but can roll with the punches too, because it, for some students are going to be pushed outside of their comfort zone a lot because we're not doing scheduled classes with, you know, large lectures. And, and for some students, that's going to be a big change and, and being able to adjust to that is important. Um, and, but first and foremost, we're looking for students with the servant's heart that they have that genuine desire to serve others. Um, our mission is to, to, provide, help provide uh, health care to the Intermountain West, which is currently lacking in, um, you know, physicians on a number of areas in, in Utah is not ranked very high. <laughs> in fact, we're very, very low in a lot of areas, 50th in the nation for female physicians. Wow. And uh, I think 49th are really low for primary care um, and surgery. So it, you know, we, we're looking for students to help us fulfill that mission, too, you know, to help get services out to, yes, it's the underserved, but it's, you know, in, in our service area, ideally, but, uh, you know, wherever they feel called to serve, ultimately. Yeah, very interesting. I, I want to talk about curriculum, since you brought that up. How How does the administration come together and say, Okay, we have traditional curriculum at some medical schools. Some medical schools have a lot of problem-based learning. Some have these system-based uh, curriculums. How do how do you come together and say this is what we want to do at our school? So that's a good question. That was done before my time, <laughs> but I know that our founding dean, Dr. John Doherty, um, he is the one that's kind of headed this this kind of change in curriculum and he he tells the story of watching his own son working on a, a project for his master's or writing a paper for his master's program while facetiming a friend and um also playing a game <laughs> and like all at the same time and he he says that he found that in that moment that he was like we've got to change how we're teaching these kids that it you know it's what we've always done isn't going to necessarily work for this generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're doing, our curriculum is based on, so they're doing like bite-sized chunks basically. So you'll have content areas and like a seven minute video that covers that content area working in small groups or pods, learning pods. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there will be board style questions at the end of each chunk, each um, core curriculum piece. And, and then they'll work through those together. Um, and, and it just lends to, you know, better learning. So those that are early birds can do, you know, find a learning pod that everyone, they're all early birds and they can learn and study together. And then those who are night owls can learn and study together. And, um, and it also will lend to a better balance. We believe a school life balance and, and allow, you know, so if you want to get in and, and do all of your curriculum and all your work and get your labs in in the morning and then go hit the slopes in the afternoon, you can do that. <laughs> so, or if you want to hit the slopes first thing in the morning and do all your work in the afternoon, you can do that. Um, 
you know, go for a morning hike or whatever, because wellness is also in, uh, built into our curriculum yeah. and, and not just in words, like it, it's really built into the curriculum. So they, students could be in the middle of a, a really challenging content piece going through a video, um, you know, on say biochemistry, for example, that, that we know is going to be really hard. And then all of a sudden they're going to have a wellness module that comes up and is going to have them, you know, maybe meditate or something like that. So that's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We're all really passionate about mental health and making sure that students leave medical school as happy and healthy as they started. Mm. (laughs) But sometimes that, that doesn't always happen that medical school can, can leave people feeling pretty cynical and and beaten down. Yeah. Um, So as a new medical school accepting your first class, I, I know because there's been a lot of new schools recently, the the question always comes up from students applying is, is there a risk in applying to a new school? What what What's going to happen? Does this look bad based on residency spots, et cetera? How, how do you overcome those questions and those fears in, in the medical, in the uh, applicants' minds? So first and foremost, every school was a new school at some point. <laughs> every school had their first class at some point yeah. and, and they've ended up okay. Um, and in our, in my experience, and I, I can't speak for forever, but in, in my eight years, I've seen a lot of uh, medical schools open up and I have yet to see one that doesn't get accreditation. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the process to get to the point where we can even accept students is so extensive and things have to be laid out. Um, that, that it might feel like a risk, but there's really not that big of a risk involved because the accrediting bodies have the students' backs. You know, they have they have everyone's back. They, they aren't gonna let us get to that point and then not let us grant degrees. And actually we're required to have money in escrow that if God forbid something did happen, that that money would be used to pay for the, the remainder of our students' medical education if for some reason we did not get oh, accreditation. Wow. So so it, it's really pretty risk-free for the students in that regard. Um, now, with regard to like residency placement, obviously we don't have board score you know, history. We don't have residency placement history, uh, but we do have some really strong uh things in place, I think that will help students to place, mm-hmm. you know, do well on their boards and place really well into residency. With USMLE step one, since you've just brought up board scores, was step one announcing that they're going to go pass fail and, and Comlex recently announcing that that level one is going to go pass fail. What changes have been implemented or, or thoughts uh, about changes uh, have been discussed based on the curriculum and everything else that that the score that a student needs isn't as important anymore at least for level one or or step one so that's where we're going to make sure that we have our students have ample opportunities to get research research is actually built into the curriculum Mm -hmm. that's a really big piece for a lot of residency programs is having that research experience and um our plan is to have every student leave with at least one publication, if not multiple. Um, and then our, we will have some unique um, experiences with our clinical rotation. So the students will do a six week 
rotation the first week will actually be on campus. So if they're going to go out on say an OB rotation, they're actually going to, with simulation and everything on campus, go through like an OB section. So mm -hmm. they'll learn, you know, practice helping to deliver a baby so that when they go and actually see that for the first time, in, it know, won't in be person, as useless. They're not going to be <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but actually, our students are going to be scribes by their second year as well, so that they are going to be more useful once they go out into the clinics. How is that built into the curriculum? So they, through the first year, they will do the scribe training and certification, so that then, then by the second year, uh, they can opt to go and do scribe. So if they say they're interested in orthopedic surgery, they want to go and you know check that out. They could go and scribe for an orthopedic surgeon, get some experience. And then um, then by the time that they're actually doing their clinical rotations, they've already, you know, wow. kind of got their feet wet. So that's interesting. Are you doing that yeah. on your own or through a third party, like a nationwide company like Scribe America? How are you doing that? I believe it's on our own. Wow. That's yeah. I, yeah, that's out of my wheelhouse. So I don't know entirely all the, the finite details. But yeah. See that that's the perfect example. You as as part of the administration, director of admissions, right? It's a, a very core piece of the curriculum that you're just like, that's not that's not my uh that's not my place. And and it's always the thing where I tell students like be careful asking very pointed, very specific questions in your interviews because not everyone knows everything. Um, and, and it's, it's hard to get to a point in your interview and the interviewer is like, I don't know, <laughs> you have any other questions? I yeah. don't know. <laughs> um, it kind of, kind of stops the interview a little dead in its tracks. Um, well that, that's awesome. A lot of, a lot of training, looking at the student, helping them get some, uh, some better training. So they're, they're not useless. Right. And I, I say that in a loving way because <laughs> I used to be useless too on every start of every new rotation. You're just useless. You're like, I don't know what to do. Um, and so that's, that's awesome. And then being a scribe, I think it's really cool because again, it, it helps open up some doors potentially to these rotations and, and specialties that you may want to do. Um, Talk about the um, the 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 process as as you're going through getting your preliminary accreditation. You get to this point where you open up for interviews. Um, how are you training interviewers to say here's here's what we're looking for? Do you specifically for your, your school, obviously, are you giving a set list of questions to interviewers? Are you saying, here are the things that we're looking for, go have great conversations and come back to us? What does that training look like? So we have um, an in-house training that, that my team and myself built. And then we actually, we developed, or I, I developed the um, QBank. So we do have a set of questions that we encourage our interviewers to go off of. Mm. And they are divided into key areas and they aren't, you know, ask these 10 questions every single time. We have a few questions for every kind of question area. And then those correspond with our um, scoring rubric for interviews. So it, it kind of helps them assess kind of the key areas that we want to, to assess applicants or interviewees on yeah. to find that goodness of fit. Yeah. I, I love that you brought up rubric because I think students hear that and they go, well, what happened to holistic admissions? All you're doing is is putting me in a box and giving me a score. That's not holistic. But it, I think 
a, a rubric, if done properly, is the epitome of holistic admissions because you have the ability to pick apart every piece of an application uh, of an applicant, so interview, application, et cetera, uh, to come up with it. And yes, it does kind of come up with a score at the end, but it's a holistic look at everything possible and then puts them in, in some sort of rank and file. Talk, talk about rubric. What does that look like? How do you decide what goes in a rubric? What stays out of a rubric? So we um, we identified kind of the, the, the key areas that would help us really assess goodness of fit. Um, so we, we kind of hit those key areas and then came up with the questions that would help us to kind of identify if, if and how students kind of fit in those key areas. And then our rubric, um, we actually have the applicant or the interviewer when they're assessing it, start with meets requirements mm. and then moving kind of, and we have a Likert scale on each of the areas and, um, and then kind of assessing, are they exceeding expectations there or are they, you know, maybe falling below. And so then that way everyone kind of starts out meeting expectations unless they do something or say something that, you know, raises concerns. Yeah. Um, and, and that is by design that we don't want to trick students. We don't want to stress them out. We, we really want to have a, a friendly conversation so that we can assess, are they a good fit? I know a lot, there are a lot of schools out there that really just try to scare the crap out of students <laughs> <laughs> to see how they handle stress, Yeah. which you know, one could argue maybe would be helpful, but um, we just don't think that that's the best way to approach it, that we really want to know who are these applicants and are they a good fit for us? Yeah. And, and so that's, that's kind of where the, how the rubric was designed to really, you know, kind of assess that. Yeah. And, Something I talk about all the time is, is that typically if you have the interview, and acceptance is kind of yours to lose. And it, it sounds like you're you're starting at that expectation, right? We like you. We want you. Don't screw up. And obviously, we're going to interview more people than we can accept. Um, but that's just the, the nature of the game. How do you how do you reassure students that you're not interviewing them for goodwill, that you really do like them and, and potentially want to see them at your school? So our all of our interview sessions this year we've been totally virtual, but all of our interview sessions open with a welcome and a short message from our dean, and he reinforces that and um, you know and says that just lets them know that they've gotten to this point because we've seen something in their application that we're not just you know willy nilly throwing out interview invitations that we've reviewed the primary application, we've, we've reviewed the secondary application, and there's something in their application that, you know, called our attention to them that they might be a good fit. And now we're, we're looking to assess that even further. Yeah. Um, so yeah. You, you mentioned earlier that you've chosen to do a video interview for your secondary. It's becoming more and more common, the AAMC now releasing the, the Vita. Um, kind of virtual interview tool. Um, why go down that route versus secondary essays like most schools? Because uh, we really wanted to have an opportunity to get to know our applicants better. And we didn't feel like having them write yet another essay, which 
I know that they recycle and reuse and swap out the names because I advised my students to do that when I was an advisor. Uh, you know, you, you have to work smarter, not harder when you're cranking out a ton of essays. Yeah. But um, but we really wanted to get a feel for, you know, who they are and felt like a video would would lend to that much better than than another essay. Um, also, with our curriculum, students have to be comfortable with technology. Mm-hmm. And so if they, you know, struggled with the technology of even recording a, a simple video, then our curriculum in our school might not be a good fit for them. How do you prevent bias from that process? Because a video seems like it may introduce more bias, whether someone has a speech impediment, maybe someone who's reviewing a video doesn't like the high pitch or low, low pitch voice, <laughs> somebody who is fat phobic and, and an, uh, an applicant is, is overweight or black brown or, or something different. How, how do you overcome bias in, in that situation? So whenever we have any kind of low scoring videos, they are either watched by one other person or by our entire video reviewing team. Um, so nobody is, is like screened out or, or we don't move beyond someone without somebody else or a group of people having a look at that video. Um, and there are some that, you know, that I say, yeah. I, someone probably ought to double check me on this one. And, and my team does the same, you know, with, with ones that they watch. Um, Cause like it or not, we all have biases and, and yeah, there are times when you have that, yeah, I'm just not feeling this person or they're kind of annoying me the way that they're, you know, talking about this or whatever. Yeah. And, and so I know that, and we all know to, to check ourselves and say, yeah, someone else better, you know, take a look at this one. Yeah. And if we're, if there are ever discrepancies when we have two people looking, then it'll go to the whole group and we will reach a consensus. You all are accepting 90 students for your first class. Yes. Um, and, and a little bit more than doubling that for a final class tally eventually. How do you decide outside of kind of like the general trendsetter type person that you mentioned earlier, how do you decide kind of the culture of the class and what does that look like and how you're building the class over time through the application cycle? So when we're looking at applicants, we're we're looking at we're looking for and looking at how each potential accepted student could make their class better. That what do they bring to the table? What experiences do they have? Um, what backgrounds do they come from? Because we believe that diversity in experience and backgrounds and you know where they grew up and everything that 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 just enriches their their education that much more. That so we're really looking to have a good diverse class that may all make one another better for having gone to school with with the others. That makes sense. Uh, it makes complete sense. It's something I talk about all the time. I, I teach students um, when asked about diversity, when asked about why should we accept you type questions to, to in your mind, frame that around, what am I going to bring uh, to add to the educational environment of my classmates? And it's not necessarily diversity from skin color um, or ethnicity, et cetera, but, but really my experiences and my, my path in life, how am I going to add to those around me? So totally makes yeah. complete sense. Awesome. Um, 
having having gotten to this point, right, director of admissions, what do you see as, as a potential in in the medical admissions world that you'd love to see change? Maybe you um, kind of directing that change in the future. I would love to see medical admissions as a whole really truly become holistic in in review. Um, and that's one of the things that drew me to Norda and and why I was interested in in becoming the director of admissions was that that we really truly are doing the holistic review that um, we've accepted students that may not have gotten acceptances anywhere else and it's because we we look beyond the GPA we look beyond the MCAT score and and if that were not the case at Norda I would not have come to work here I just that I've seen too many people as an advisor, too many of my uh, advisees who maybe quote unquote shouldn't have made it, who have have made it and they've thrived. And and I believe they're going to be some of the best physicians out there because you know they have that heart yeah. um, and they've put in the hard work and you know they they fought for it. They want to be there, so. How do you balance that with the fact that students are paying a lot of money to go to medical school and there are hurdles that they have to overcome uh, at every step of the way and and you as a school are being evaluated based on pass rates and, and students getting through in four years? How do you balance all of that to make sure that you are taking quote unquote risks on these students uh, who maybe don't have the best GPAs, don't have the best MCAT scores. Um, how do you balance that with the fact that they still need to get through your curriculum and pass the <laughs> boards and, 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 and pass even in residency, all the tests that they're going to have to take? Sure. Um, and, and that one, it, it, it's a fine line that you have to walk, but I believe that with our curriculum and the way that it's set up, um, we'll, so every student will have docents and advisors who will check up on them if they're you know, falling behind. And students who are struggling will be required to attend review sessions. And they won't be like repeating lectures or anything like that. It'll be open discussion and, and talking about the areas that, that folks are struggling with. Um, so I think having that extra support and the with our unique curriculum, I think will help that, you know, help those students along. We'll have the learning specialists by their side, the docents by their side and helping them through. Um, but yeah, it, it is a fine line that you have to walk and, you know, you have to, we, we look at, um, you know, improvement over time. So we, we do weigh pretty heavily the last 60 credits. Mm. So um, looking at, you know, that upward trend that you always talk about, demonstrating that upward trend and showing that you can, uh, you know, handle a tough load and and show improvement over time. So we do look at that. Um, but yeah, that it is a fine line to walk. Yeah. But ultimately, too, it's, you know, students have to be willing to dig in and do the work. Yeah. Too, is, so. is that 60 credits undergrad, master's combined? Doesn't matter. Yes, it uh, doesn't matter. Nice. Very yeah. cool. Um, as, as you are there again, I, I love just 
watching watching you go through this whole journey as well from <laughs> from pre-med advisor to um to director of admissions um obviously this this year this cycle uh just thrown for a loop because of covid and and just completely changing everything everything going virtual in terms of interviews um when it came to deciding uh, for your first class, if you were going to um, to to make the MCAT not mandatory or anything else, how did you all decide on on what you were going to do about the MCAT this cycle? Um, it, I mean, we looked at just kind of what the reality of the situation is, mm-hmm. and that, um, and actually, about ninety eight percent of our applicants do have MCAT scores. Wow. So uh, the vast majority have been able to sit for the MCAT. Um, but we did look at, you know, how, how do we assess that? And, and what if they can't? We do have a waiver option for students that can demonstrate that they were not able to sit for the MCAT uh, because it was canceled or because they got sick or they were caring for a family member that got sick or they, you know, yeah. financial constraints related to, you know, job loss due to COVID, that sort of thing. Um, and so those were the things and we, we understand everyone is this year, this you know, 2020, this pandemic rocked everyone <laughs> and we get it. And, and we, you know, want to err on the side of compassion and, and understanding to the extent that we can. Um, but having an MCAT score definitely does help us make some decisions, frankly, I mean, or some standardized test scores, ACT, SAT even can be helpful, but mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that's kind of what we looked at. Do you see a future of medical school admissions without an MCAT? I don't know that I do. I, <laughs> I'd like to say that I Come do. Come on. <laughs> I, if it were up to me, yes. Yeah. Um, but it, I just, I think that if it happens, it's a long time from now because I think, stu- I think the schools have gotten too used to having yeah. the scores and, and you yeah. have to have something to assess. We have to make sure that students can, you know, take standardized tests and, and do at least decently well, or, you know, you do them a disservice. Yeah. They can't ever pass boards. Yeah. That makes sense. What are some, uh, some just complete red flags, like hard stop, hard no things that you've seen, in an application that you've seen or heard in the interview process now that you're on the, the medical school side of things? Um, hard stop. So there are definitely some um, legal charges that that for us are, are hard stops, just given where our clinical rotation sites are and their limitations. Um, of course, we, we understand that people can change and, you know, the past doesn't always predict future behavior, but... Uh, we've had to unfortunately say sorry, but we can't move forward with some students that, you know, had otherwise strong applications just because we could not get them into the hospitals to do rotations. Yeah. And that's, so, and that maybe is specific to Norda and not every yeah. medical school. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. I've worked with plenty of students as an advisor who had uh, some of the same charges that did go on to medical yep. school and residency and they did just fine. But yeah. That's what, just, that's what just kind of what we're dealing with. Yeah. Um, other red flags. Um, I, I feel like it's all the, the typical ones. 
Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything kind of outside the box that stands out. I'm drawing a blank right now. Yeah, that's okay. Um, um, so talk about institutional action because those come up, I think, the most for students reaching out saying, this happened. Uh, I recently just had a mom reach out to me saying, oh my gosh, my son being at home, like worked together with a partner and supposedly that he wasn't supposed to do that and now has an institutional action for cheating. And like, how how are you reviewing those and, and determining this person has moved on or, or this may be an issue? So, um, obviously all we can go off of is what is written on the application. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're looking at, I mean, there are some institutional actions that raise, you know, bigger concerns than others, but for me, when reviewing them, it comes down to, has this person taken ownership mm -hmm. of their role in whatever happened? Um, even if they feel like they were, you know, unfairly accused and they didn't believe that they did whatever. Um, but can they, can they at least take some ownership in, in how that even raised a question or how that, you know, even was a possibility to be accused and then, um, uh, showing how, what they've learned from that experience. Um, that goes a long way. I think demonstrating that they've learned, they've grown, they, they act and, and operate differently as a result of that experience. I think that's really important. Yeah. I, I had a student once give me an example. He was, he was asking for feedback. He said his institutional action uh, description started out, I was falsely accused of. I'm like, no, no, like, <laughs> no. Don't, don't start out like that. Um, you don't want to do that. Um, where can students find out more about Norda College of Osteopathic Medicine? So on our website, which is nordicom.org, and then on the um, Choose DO Explorer, we have a page there as well where all, all of the osteopathic medical schools have information. Nice. So, yeah. What are your final words of wisdom for the, the pre-med student out there who's doubting their journey, doubting their ability to get into medical school? Now with all of your expertise on both sides of the admissions world, what kind of final words do you want to leave them with? Um, I would say when there's a will and a lot of really hard work, there's a way. That if, that if this is your passion, if this is what you feel called to do, find a way to make it happen. And, and it might not happen on your terms or in the timeline that you would prefer, but if you put in the hard work and, and you, you know, keep pushing forward, I, I believe everyone can find a way to achieve their dreams. All right. So there you go. Again, Kristen Anderson of Norda College of Osteopathic Medicine. If you want to find out more, go to nordacom.org. That's N-O-O-R-D-A-C-O-M.org. Go find out how you can apply to their medical school in an upcoming cycle. I hope you got a lot of great information out of this podcast. I I wanted to bring Kristen on because of, of her amazing dedication to her students and what she's doing at Norda College of Osteopathic Medicine. And I kind of knew that she aligned with a lot of my philosophies on telling stories and being authentic. And if that's something that resonates with you and you haven't picked up my books yet, go check them out all at premedplaybook.com. 
Amazon.com, that'll take you to my Amazon account or Amazon page that has all of my books. As I'm recording this, as actually as this episode comes out, I will be on a call with my publisher for my fourth book, which is all about the application process. So more to come with the whole pre-med playbook series. Again, I hope this was helpful. I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.